Verse 1, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. You know what the best thing to do is? When your whole church family did the truth to God, get him in the church, then you have to worry about all that. Okay? Say, after these things. All right, here we go. Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jew, Jew, Jewry. Jew, not jewelry. Jewry. That sounds like the way Bishop says jewelry. Jewelry. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. Is it that fun? Now the Jews' feast was uh, the feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret. And he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. Go you up into the feast. I go not up yet into the feast, this feast, for my time is not full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up and went, he also up into the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And I'm going to do my best tonight to preach the seventh chapter of John. Really, I should spend about six to eight hours in the seventh chapter of John. But I'm going to try to preach the whole chapter tonight. So if I go two hours or so, just get ready. Okay? I'll try to condense about six to eight hours into two, two and a half hours. All right. Father, we come before you today. We ask God your blessing to be upon the reading of your holy word. We ask God tonight that your will would be done, Lord Jesus, in our midst. Lord, we give you all the glory and the honor and the praise and the worship. We magnify and exalt you right now. We thank you for all that you're going to do tonight in this house, O oh God. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. God bless your hearts. It's good to have... Uh, Feliciano, huh? Feliciano Rios Ortega is a friend of Brother Rudd from Arizona. Praise God. Good to have him tonight with us. Amen. Okay, we come to this. The Bible tells us. Now, we're about six months or so from the previous chapter because the previous chapter took place around the time of the Feast of Passover. So now we're jumping about six months into the future or thereabouts into the seventh chapter, some time has taken place. We're about a year, no, less than a year, from the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. To give you a time frame here, very close to the time of his death, all right? John chapter 7 is really connected to John chapter 5. But in John chapter 5, the Bible tells us that Jesus healed the man that was impotent by the pool of Bethesda. And when he healed that man, he told that man to take up his bed and walk with that bed, it was on the Sabbath day, and he was accused of breaking the law of God by telling that man to take up his bed on the Sabbath day. So from that time forward, the Jews, which are the religious leaders of Israel, had their eyes on him to kill him. Now going back to John chapter 2, he drove 
the money changers out of the temple with a whip. And so because of that, and also because of what he did in relationship to that man, healing him on the Sabbath day, then telling him to take up his bed, and then making himself equal with God, the Jewish leaders set their eyes on him to kill him. So as a result of that, the Bible tells us Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, that doesn't mean that he's not going to go into Jerusalem because he will in this chapter. Okay? But he primarily is keeping his distance from Jerusalem because they're trying to kill him. He knows it. He knows what's in their hearts. See, he's God. He knows everything. But he doesn't just know what is in the mind of God. He knows what's in the heart of men. He knows the thoughts of everybody in this church tonight. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what's in your mind. So he doesn't just know what was in the mind of God. He knows what was in the heart of man. The Bible says he knew what was in man, John 2. He still does. He knows what's in me. He knows what's in you. He knows what was in them. So he knew on the inside of them that they wanted to kill him. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to destroy him. They hated him that much. As I said, because he drove out the money changers out of the temple in John chapter 2 and because he told the man in John chapter 5 to take his bed on the Sabbath day, they said he broke the law of God, which he did not do. And then they said he made himself equal with God, which he was equal to God. And so for that reason, he was trying. they were trying to kill him. So John 7 is connected to John 5. Isn't that sad? That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God come in flesh, has come to His own creation. The eternal God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, has come and robed Himself in flesh. And He's walking among His own creation. His own creation does not welcome Him. And His own creation is seeking to kill Him. That shows the desperate condition of man. He says the Jews sought to kill Him. We're not talking about the population as a whole. We're talking about... When you say the Jews, you're talking about the religious leaders. You're talking about the scribes and the Pharisees, etc. The Sadducees, the leaders, are trying to kill him. The Bible tells us in verse 2, it was the time of the tabernacle. So Jesus is going to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles and observe this feast. Amen? That's the background. Give you a little background on the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is one of the greatest celebrations that Israel ever had. There were seven total feasts. The Feast of Tabernacles, the seventh feast. They went up to Jerusalem, and in the court of the women, they had these huge menorahs, four of them, filled with oil, and they took the, the clothes of the priest, the used clothes of the priest of Israel. And they threw those clothes of the priest, which would be called swaddling clothes, into the tops of those four menorahs that were huge there in the court of the women. And they lit those menorahs during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and in the nighttime, it was such a tremendous celebration, a tremendous feast, that they would dance in the light of those menorahs. They would worship God. The 15th day of the month of September or Tishrei, it's either September or October, depending on you know what how the calendar, our calendar falls on it. But the 15th month to the 21st day of Tishrei, which is normally September or October, was when this feast took place. A total of seven days. Leviticus 23 gives you the reason, you know, this background on the feast. 
And then there was another day that was added to that seven-day celebration. It's an eighth day. It was a holy convocation. They made it a Sabbath day, an eighth day. So if you count the Sabbath day that was connected to the feast, there's a total of eight days. But the feast itself lasted for seven days. There's tremendous celebration and dancing in the open air at night under the menorahs, and which will bring you to John chapter 8 when Jesus talks that he says that he's the light of the world. Okay? The background is the Feast of Tabernacles, even in John chapter 8. First day of the feast, the priests would get these golden vessels. And they would go down to the pool of Siloam. Siloam uh, means scent. And they would go down there and they would gather water in these golden vessels. And pool of Siloam. And then another priest would go down to the Valley of Kidron and he would gather branches. He would gather palm branches. He would gather willow branches. He would gather olive branches. He would gather myrtle branches from the Kidron. And he would gather those and he would bring them and he would place them on the sides of the altar. And the first day, the priest bringing this water in this vessel, he would go up and again with these branches there, and I'll talk to you about it in just a little bit, but with these branches on the side of the altar, he would walk up to the altar and there was a funnel, a silver funnel. And he would pour this water into that silver funnel and that, would wa that water would run down that funnel onto the ground. Say water. And he would do this every day for seven days. And there would be the sounding of trumpets and dance and celebration. It was a celebration for the fruit harvest, the grape harvest that was going to take place. It's the greatest, joyous festival that Israel had. Seven days they did this, and then on the seventh day, which is the great day of the feast. It's not the eighth day. The eighth day was never called the great day. The eighth day was the Sabbath day, the day following the feast. But the seventh day, which was the great day, the last day of the feast, the priest would gather that water once again, and he would bring it. And trumpets would be sounding and people, you know, with these various branches in the sides of the altars, they also had branches and they would wave the branches toward the altar itself, the people would. Okay. And while they were doing this, a tremendous celebration taking place, the priests would walk around that altar with that water seven times, commemorating the time when Israel walked around Jericho. And the brothers were talking about Jericho tonight. They walked around Jericho seven times. They sounded the trumpets seven times on the seventh day. And they sounded the shofar, the ram's horns. And when they did, the walls came crashing down. And so on the Feast of Tabernacles, this priest would walk around that altar seven times to commemorate Jericho's walls coming down. He would take that water and he would pour it into the vessel, into that silver vessel, and it would flow out onto the ground. That was a ceremony connected with the Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus was going to go up to. But at that time, the same time, the people would build booths or what they call tents, tabernacles. And these tabernacles were not like canvas like we have today, you know. Not a canvas kind of a tent, but these tabernacles were like an old brush arbor. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of the old brush arbors where uh, spirit-filled Pentecostal people used to meet brush arbors. They'd throw sand... Uh, or uh, sawdust on the ground. And they'd, they'd set up these brush harbors. They'd 
these pieces of, of wood, trees or whatever, and they would put hay on the top of it, etc. And they would have their meetings out under the old brush arbors. And the Pentecostal apostolic people get full of the Holy Ghost and they start worshiping God and all of a sudden they start rolling in that dust, in that sawdust, you know. In those old brush arbors, that's the way they used to, used to worship God. I don't know if you knew that or not. But these tabernacles were like that. They weren't tents made out of canvas. They were meant, uh, made out of branches and leaves on them. And to commemorate the food harvest, they would have the citron, the lemon there. And they would have uh, in their booths it's themselves these various branches. They would have the olive branch in that, that sukkah or that tabernacle, the olive branch, which speaks of God's covenant with His people and spiritual power. They would have also the palm branch in that sukkah, which speaks of triumphant victory. They would have the willows in that sukkah, in that tabernacle, because the willows speak of their deliverance from captivity. Because remember, in the Bible it tells us when they were captured that they hung their harps in the willow branches. It was a time of weeping because they were captured and they hung their, their, their harps in the willow trees. And so now, to commemorate God's deliverance from captivity, they bring the willows there and the willows spoke of deliverance. Did you catch it? The olive branch speaks of covenant spiritual power. Are y'all here? The palm, triumphant victory, and the willows speak of deliverance. And they'd also bring a pine, a pine, a, a pine tree, and they would bring also a branch of the myrtle. And the myrtle speaks of gladness and joy and victory and celebration. They put all these branches in that little sukkah, and they would hang fruit in that sukkah to commemorate how God provided for them in the wilderness when He brought them out of Egypt. And as they traveled in, uh, in that wilderness for 40 years, all they had to live in was a little tabernacle or a little sukkah. And God said, celebrate tabernacles. Have this feast to commemorate when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. He said, I want you to remember where you came from. Don't forget where you came from, how I brought you out of Egypt. And by the way, tabernacles was, is connected to Passover. So he said, remember how I brought you out of Egypt now. And so I'll eat once a year between, like I said, the 15th and 21st of Tishrei, September, October, or October. They did this to remember where they came from, to remember what God had done for them when he brought them out of Egyptian captivity, to remember their roots, because God does not want you to forget where you came from. He didn't want his people to remember, uh, to forget where they came from. So he said, do this every year. And so they set their little tabernacles up, sometimes on top of the houses, sometimes in the streets. Just all over the place in Israel, you would see these little tabernacles. And they would celebrate and they would dance. And they would rejoice in God's provision. And they would remember where God brought them from. I want to tell you today, you have to remember where God brought you from. Because if you don't, if you don't remember where God brought you from, you'll have a tendency to want to go back to it. Because at some point in your life, you will think, you will think in your mind that it was better out there than it is here. So God says, I want you to build tabernacles. I want you to celebrate this feast and build these tabernacles to remember where you came from so you'll never want to go back to Egypt again. Remember what God did for you and how He delivered you by the blood of a Passover lamb. And so commemorate that once a year. Remember where you came from and remember where your roots are. Amen. I want to remember where I came from. I thank God today. If it wasn't for God finding me, 
I would probably be dead today, honestly. And I think some of you could say the same thing, that if it hadn't been for God intervening in your life and finding you, you would probably be dead today. And, and if, if not dead, hopelessly lost. And aside from that, probably your marriages would be disintegrated. Your children would be completely messed up. So we need to remember where we, where we came from. And so it's a time of great celebration, this Feast of Tabernacles. Hallelujah. And for a side note also in some of the trees, an olive again, it speaks of the covenant of God with Israel, spiritual power. Also, there's a fig tree. And the fig tree speaks of the nation of Israel and they're receiving the providence of God. And then, are y'all here tonight? And the vine. And the vine speaks of spiritual productivity or the spiritual blessings of God. So they brought all this together and they were just celebrating. They would just dance and the priests would go through their rituals with their water and all of this was going on. The lights were shining and it's one of the greatest celebrations that Israel ever had. It was even bigger and greater than Passover or Pentecost. The other two feasts that was mandatory for you as a male over 20 to attend. And if you lived in a foreign country and you were in a synagogue, they sent a delegation from your synagogue to represent that synagogue. So at this point, millions of people are there in Jerusalem. Millions of people have converged from all over the world to celebrate this tremendous feast to remember where God brought them from. And at that time, his brethren, Jesus' brethren, looks at him and says, let's go up to the feast. Go up to the feast and show some miracles. Show some signs. Let the world know who you are. Well, they don't realize, maybe, or, or maybe they have forgotten, but, you know, he's already done some powerful things in Jerusalem. But his brethren, say his brethren, which means he had brothers, younger brothers, because obviously Jesus was the firstborn son of Mary. He was the son of God and he was not the son of Joseph. He was the son of God. He was the son of Joseph by adoption, but he was not the son of God by being begotten. He was begotten by God. The son of Mary, the son of God. Mary had brothers after the birth of Jesus Christ and these brothers were younger than he was. They lived with him. I don't know how many years. I don't know if it was 30 years or what. But they lived with Jesus for a long time, these younger brothers and also sisters, by the way. Which means Mary had children after the birth of, of Jesus. And Catholics today try to get away around that and away from that by saying the word here means cousins. No, the word means brothers. Or the Catholic tries to get around this by saying Joseph had children before he married Mary. Not so. Jesus had brethren, okay? Natural, physical, half-brothers. And they lived with him. They knew who he was. And I'm sure probably they didn't... The Bible tells us they didn't believe in him. And I'm sure that Jesus, who he was, what he said, the way he lived probably brought a reproach on the family because as we have seen, the nation rejected Jesus Christ. Are y'all here tonight? Rejected him, hated him, wanted to kill him. And so having Jesus in your home, having Jesus in your family 
which they did, it brought a reproach on them. He brought a reproach on the family. If you might, you might say they were just embarrassed of him. They're really embarrassed. They didn't believe in him. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. They didn't believe he was the Son of God. No matter what Mary told them in life when they were coming up, they didn't believe the testimony of Mary, their mother. They did not believe in Jesus Christ. They lived with him all those years. Did you catch that? His own family. And so, under family pressure, carnal, carnal, carnal brothers, selfish brothers, who do not believe in Him. It's, it's hard for me to imagine that you could live with Jesus all those years, but your family members, these family members not believing Him. You kind of wonder, you know, here you are in the church, and you witness to your family members, and, and you, you don't understand why they don't believe like you believe, why they don't, why they don't see it, why, don't they, why they won't hear it, why they won't believe it, why they won't live it. But you need to see that Jesus Christ lived with this family and His brothers did not believe in Him. So don't be surprised if your family members don't believe the gospel when you preach to them. They didn't believe in Jesus Christ and He lived with them. You understand? And they, they lived with what they thought was a reproach in their house. And so they try to put some pressure on Jesus Christ. Say pressure. Family pressure. Let me just tell you this. Once you get through witnessing to your family the gospel, go on and preach the gospel to the lost. Don't waste your time on family members. After you've witnessed to them, after you've prayed for them, after you've tried to reach them and they still don't want Jesus Christ, don't waste your time anymore on them. Go out there to lost people and find lost people who want to know Jesus Christ. Now the good thing about it is later after His resurrection, we have some of them believing. His brethren believe, but not at this point. Amen. So I don't want to give you, I don't want to take your hope away. Your family will never come in. It's possible. But they, they tried to put pressure on Jesus to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles with them at that time. But He did not want to go up with them because he does, He's not going with unbelievers. He doesn't have any desire to go up with them. And really, they don't care anything about Him as well. So He don't play the game that some of you play. Some of y'all are, you play games. Okay? You give in to, to family pressures and you give in whatever they want you to do, you give in to it. Jesus did not give in to family pressure. They wanted Him to go up, they're in unbelief. He doesn't want to go up. They are, listen, are y'all hearing me today? They are carnal, they are fleshly, just like some of your family members are carnal and fleshly and they do not believe in God. They are lost. You understand that? And the only reason why they wanted Jesus to go up is so that He could work some kind of miracle there in Jerusalem. If you're really who you claim to be, if you're really the Messiah, why are you trying to hide that? Go up and let the world know who you are. 
Work a sign or work a miracle. What is interesting to me is that there is no sign or miracle done in this chapter. And that's what they wanted him to do during the Feast of Tabernacles. He looks at his brethren. Here's what he says. Because he knew, he knew what was in man. Are you with me? John chapter 2. He says he knew what was in man. He knew what was in his own family members. I ask you tonight, do you know what's in your own family members? They were not on God's time. They were on their own time. They were doing their own thing. They were going to go to the Feast of Tabernacles because that's just what they wanted to do and they didn't care about God. But Jesus Christ was on God's time and He's going to do what God tells Him to do. I'm talking about it in His humanity. Say amen. So verse 3, His, his brethren therefore said unto Him, Depart hence and go into Judea that thy disciples also may see the, work, the works that thou doest. But they didn't have a clue that those people in Jerusalem wanted to kill him. You understand? Jesus knows they want to kill him. That's what the verse first says. They know they want to, he knows they want to kill him. But evidently his brothers don't have a clue about what is in those people. That those people want to kill him as soon as they can get their hands on him. They don't have a clue about that. But Jesus knows. So they, they said, come on, go up there and, and do a work, you know. Uh, that they may see the works. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou doest these things, show thyself to the world. See, they're coming from a carnal position. They're coming from a, a selfish position. Come on. Won't you go do a work? Because you know, most people would want to be known. But see, Jesus was not interested in turning heads. He was interested in turning hearts. Come on, go show a sign. Make yourself known. Let the world know who you are. That's the same spirit that we have in the church today. Everybody wants their name to be known. They want their faces plastered on posters. They want everybody in the world to know them. But Jesus wasn't interested in that. Say amen. Because he knew what was in man. He knew they wanted to kill him. Praise the Lord. And Jesus did not submit himself to the pressure of his family. He did not subject himself to the pressures of his family. Amen? Didn't give in to that pressure. Because he knew it was coming from carnality. Carnality, he knew it was worldly. Why don't you go up? And I'm not reading into the text. I'm telling you what I believe. Why would they want him to go up? Go show yourself who you are. Because we've been living with this reproach for years. Prove who you are so we don't have to live with this anymore. Show them clearly that you're the Messiah. The problem with church, if he would have went in there and did the sign and the miracle of the work that they requested him to do, they still wouldn't have believed in him. And Jesus knew those people in Jerusalem 
would not believe in him if he did what his brothers asked him to do. He wasn't going to give into that kind of pressure and work a miracle for an unbeliever. He don't do miracles for unbelievers. And he won't do a miracle for you in your unbelief. He don't waste miracles. He doesn't waste miracles. So even if he went up there to Jerusalem and did one of those works his brothers wanted him to do, they still would not have believed. Brother, go find There's somebody not in here tonight. Go find out what they're doing. They wouldn't have believed it, man. If he had worked them sign the miracle, it might have made them look better. You know? Because this is our brother, you know? We, think he's, we don't believe in him either. They wouldn't have believed it. They were selfish. It was self-motivated. And it was worldly. And it was carnal. And it was motivated out of the flesh. And about letting the flesh be known. Just an appearance. People looking at people. That's the problem with the church today. People looking at people and being more concerned about what people think than they are about what God thinks. And so the church is spineless, weak, carnal, worldly, and fleshly, only wanting to appeal to the world. People pleasers and not God pleasers. But Jesus would not subject Himself to that kind of pressure. He knew what was in His own brothers. He knew what was in His own family. He knew what was motivating them. So here's what He says to them. Verse 5, here's verse 5. For neither did His brethren believe in Him. Did not believe in Him. His own family. Your greatest battle and I'm bringing it to you this morning, tonight, your greatest battle when you come into church is going to be your family. It's going to be your family. That, that's where your struggle is going to be. And by the way, let me just help some of you sisters. How many sisters want some help tonight? Y'all say, well, let me know what you want to help us with first. And, but let me help some of you sisters. If your husband is not under the rulership of Jesus Christ, he has forfeited his lordship in the area of the spiritual. He is not the one in the house that is spiritual. If he is not under the rulership of God, it is you, my sister, that has the spiritual authority in your house because he has forfeited that spiritual authority because he's not ruled by God. Don't ever forget what I'm telling you. Now, if you want to, you can let that carnal man go and sign the banknotes. You'll let him do that. He's got the authority to go sign his name on the banknote, but he doesn't have spiritual authority over you. He has forfeited that right in his life. So if, if he is not, listen to me, I'm talking to all of you tonight. If that husband, you husband, 
are not under the rulership of God, you have forfeited your spiritual authority in that home. And that wife is the spiritual leader of your house. Whoa. How can he rule you if he's not ruled by God? And the pressure that comes on from the family. Carnal unbelieving husbands and carnal unbelieving wives. But in this case, I'm talking to the wives because I want to help you tonight. You are the spiritual leader of your house. Woo, glory. This is getting heavy. See, this is, tonight, I'm just going to be honest with you, it's going to be heavy theology. It's going to be heavy theology. Look at Jesus' response to his family. Verse 6, he said, watch. Then Jesus said unto them, notice his response to their response to him. My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. He said, I'm on God's time. Everything he did, everything he said, when he went, where he went, what he said when he went, everything he did, it was under the control of the spirits of God. And he's letting his brothers know, those who do not believe in him, which means they don't know God. See, they're going to go up there and they're going to observe this religious festival, but they don't know God. Because if they had known God, they would have known him. And because they don't believe in him, they don't know God because he is God. So they're going to go to church and you know, they're going to dance and they're going to party and they're going to act like they're the believers, you know. But they don't even know God. Religious family members. And so he tells them, I'm controlled by the Spirit of God. His timing. His timing. Everything he tells me to do when I do it, I do it. I obey. Jesus said, I obey God. You don't. So your time is always. You can you do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it because you have no plans on obeying God. But he says, in contrast to you, I obey the Spirit of God. I do what God tells me to do when God tells me to do it. But you don't. So your time is always. You can do whatever you want to do because that's what you do. You know, okay. Like but they're say. Because this is what we do, right? Jesus does what He does because He is obedient to God. They do what they're doing because they are in unbelief and do not believe in God. But they will tell you they believe in God. They're going to the festival. Then Jesus, come on with us. He said, verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but me it hated. The world can't hate you, now, this is strong. How many of y'all would really get just really, I would just tell you this. You would just tell the, your family the truth and tell them the world can't hate you. It's going to hate me. But the world can't hate you because you're a part of it. See, when you really start serving God, get ready for the world to hate you. Religious leaders included. But the world will not hate your family members. They're not going to hate the religious leaders. They're not going to hate them because they are a part of the system. And he looks them right in the eyeballs and he tells them, the world hates me, and it did. But it, it, it can't hate you. 
Why? Why can't it hate them? Because they're a part of the system. They're loved by the world because they're a part of the world. Why did they hate him? He said, I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Why came in this world? He said, I came to declare the need of man and his need is salvation from sin. And he's walking here as the light of the world and he's declaring by his word, by what he's preaching, he's revealing that the world is evil. How many of y'all believe today the world is evil? And I'm not talking about the planet. I'm talking about those that are part of the world system that's in opposition to God. I don't care if they're in a church or not. They're still a part of the system. When I say church, I'm talking about an organized system of religion. Oh, they love, they love it. They love you, he says, because you're a part of it. He said, I'm hated because I testify of the world that the works thereof are evil. They're evil. That's why he's hated. He didn't fit in. They wanted to take Jesus and put Jesus into their mold. But Jesus said, you're not putting me in your mold. Jesus, hallelujah today. Give me strength, God. Jesus is not going to let you put him in your mold. He's going to take you and put you in his mold. And so when he came into the world, he refused to let the world put him in their mold. And he also refused to let them straddle the fence. And he was also a God who confront, uh, brought confrontation and a showdown. See, there's sometimes there has to be a showdown in your life. And Jesus is having a showdown. He's having a confrontation. The world couldn't squeeze him into their mold. He wasn't on the world's time. He wasn't going to do what the world wanted him to do. The pressure was on from his family. But he said, no. I'm not succumbing to that. Look at your name and say, heavy theology. Go ye up unto this feast. He says, go ahead and go. You, you go without me because I have no desire to walk in your presence. I have no desire to go to the feast with you. I just said, I don't want to go to church with you. You're a bunch of hypocrites and unbelievers. You're a part of the world system. The world can't hate you, it hates me. Because he's not a part of the system. He said, you go up there and you, you be a part of the world system and you, you know, you play the little game. Right? He said, I'm not going with you. Give God praise in the house. See, he wasn't into putting on the show or the appearance. He never gave you the impression that he was fitting in. He never gave you the impression that you could put him into your mold. He never gave you the impression by his appearance that he was okay with the world. Everything he did, everything he said was letting you know that I do not agree with this world system. And I'm not putting, I'm not into appearances and I'm not into putting on a show like you want me to. I'm not going to do it. Ooh, help me, help me, help me. 
He's letting them know he's obedient to God. And he's not wanting to have the appearance that he fits. Oh, come on, Jesus, let's have a good time. Let's go to the Tabernacle Tabernacles. Come on, we'll be a big family. We'll be, you know, we can show family unity here. We can show we're together. Won't you go with us? Jesus said, I have no desire to go up to the feast with you. Because you don't obey God. You're a part of the system. So why would I, why would he want to go to the feast with people just to put on a show that they're, they're tight family? Forget it. I pray to God, God hits you right between the eyes. He said, Pastor, whew, man, Pastor. Are you preaching to me, Pastor? Are you preaching to me, Pastor? Brother Dice used to put it this way. No, he said, I'm just shooting in a skunk skin then. He said, I'm just shooting in a skunk skin then. If you got hit, that means you were in a skunk skin. So don't even ask. He said, don't even ask me if it was to you. If you were in the skunk den and you got hit, then it was to you. You were in the skunk den. So if you're in the skunk den tonight, I hope that you get shot right between the eyes with truth. Let's show family solidarity. How can you show family solidarity when they're in unbelief and they hate Jesus Christ? They don't believe in Him. They don't know Him. Oh, we put on a show though. We got to have an appearance like everything's okay, you know. We want people to be happy with us, right? We don't want to ruffle any feathers. Oh, not Jesus Christ. Yeah, we can talk the talk, but are we really walking the walk? When he said, okay, verse 8, go you up into the feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. It's not time for me to die yet. It's not time for me to go this. God hasn't told me to go. God hasn't told me to do this. I'm not going to do this just to show family solidarity. I'm not going to give in to family pressures here. They don't believe in him anyway. They don't believe God. They don't know God. It's just all a show to them. That's all it is. It's just outward appearance. People looking at people. Jesus, help me tonight. And maybe I am kind of, you know, out there today. But I'm telling you, I, really, I'm getting to a place where I don't know where I fit. I don't know if I fit in this church. I for sure don't fit in this world. Because when I take, when I stand up and take a stand on certain things, somebody's like, oh, what's he, what's that about? What's he doing? Sometimes I don't even feel comfortable in my own church. Hallelujah to the Lamb. And I know I don't fit in the world. So where do we go? Everybody, the church, even this one, even this one wants to fit into the world and wants to show family solidarity and wants to have a good show, a good appearance. 
When are you going to draw the lines in your life? When are you going to tell your brothers and your sisters? I'm not fitting in your mold. I don't want to do this because I'm not showing them. Now listen, not all your family's bad. I'm not saying they're all bad. I'm just telling you, you don't need to put on a show for them. I got family members dying. Funeral services. I got family members calling me, hey, so-and-so passed away. Would you go to the funeral? Didn't go. Didn't go. It wasn't even a Catholic deal. Protestant deal. Didn't go. Not because I didn't love the person, but I'm not going to go just show my face and put on an appearance. I'm not going to show anybody anything. I don't have the emotional strength right now to give to that. And if God don't send us, we don't go to it. And I know some of my family members, they looked at me and said, why didn't you go? I told them, I said, emotionally, I can. I have a church I pastor. I am putting my life into them. I can't run off to all these things that come up emotionally. I cannot do it. I told one brother last night, I don't need no more water in my boat. If I keep getting water in my boat, I'm going to sink. So I'm not going to give myself emotionally just for an appearance, just to show up. You, if you go, you better know God sent you there. You live it, I live it. You live it. He said, when he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee, and they went up to the feast. Here they go. Left Jesus behind. Where's Jesus? Where's your brother? I really believe we're in the end times right now. I really believe we're in the last days right now. And I really believe God is purging the unbeliever. And he's going to leave the remnant. Well, okay. You say, you're scaring me, Pastor. You're scaring me. Well, hallelujah. I'd rather be on the, the, the side of God and Jesus Christ. Hold on just a minute. And the truth than to be playing the game for appearance. And hanging around with Antichrist. I want to win him to God. I'll witness to you. I'll tell you the truth. If you don't want my Jesus... You don't want my Jesus? I'm not here to put on a show. Okay? That's scary. Some of you say, that's scary, Pastor. Really? Scary? I'll tell you what's scary. A man by the name of Brian Epstein who associated himself with the Beatles. Brian Epstein is now dead. He made a statement. He said, when he associated himself with the Beatles, he was an antichrist. But he said, the Beatles were more of an antichrist than I was. And he said, they scared me. And he said, I was an antichrist, but they scared me. 
What are you saying, Pastor? I'm trying to show you in this chapter who really believes in the Lord by the Bible. This is not Pastor say. This is the Bible. Who really believes in the Lord? Who? Who of you? Who of you? Do I really believe the Lord? Who of you really believe the Lord? You will show it by your action if you really believe in Him or not. You can't say I believe Him and your actions go contrary to Him. Have your eyes on people so people be pleased with you. Say praise the Lord. So his brethren, family members, they go up without him. He told them to do it. And the Bible says, then the Jews, oh, what this? Not, so he goes up after them by himself. Why? Because he knows what's in the heart of those Jewish leaders. As I said before, God, he didn't just know what God was thinking. He knew what man was thinking. He knew that they were that they hated him, brother Patrick. They knew he knew that they were hostile towards him, and he knew that that hatred that leads to hostility will end in murder. He knew it, and so his brothers, unbelievers, don't know God. Go up to the little church service celebration of the tabernacles, and and then Jesus on God's time. He goes to the tabernacles. These are tabernacles in the middle of it. In the middle of tabernacles. Because God told him to. Now I'm not mad at you. I love you. But I'm trying to preach the word of God to you. I pray that this is indelibly printed on your spirit and your heart for the rest of your life. Who really believes in the Lord? They're part of the system. They're going up. He's obedient to God in contrast to their disobedience. Verse 10. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were secret. He's not trying to have an appearance. He's not trying to put on a show. He goes up secretly. No show. No people looking at people thing. Verse 11. Then the Jews, those are the religious leaders. Praise God. Sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? See, they were waiting for him to show up at the Feast of Tabernacles. Where is he? We're looking for him. See, their intentions were to kill him, right? They weren't seeking him because they wanted to know him. They were seeking him because they wanted to kill him. So they're asking around. Hey, we've seen his brethren walking around here. But we didn't see Jesus with them. You understand how dangerous it is to expose yourself, to come out from under covering There are times when you need to be incognito. You need to know when you need to keep yourself a secret. Okay? And stay away from situations. Okay? Hallelujah. Give God praise. 
stay undercover. He stayed undercover. Jews are looking for him. Where is Jesus? Where is he? In verse 12, and there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, now look at the different responses concerning Jesus. Some said he's a good man. Right? He's a good man. Look at what he said. He fed the 5,000, you know. He healed, the lame, he healed that impotent man by the pool of Bethesda. He's a good man. Working miracles, doing good things for people. He's a good man. That was what some people said. Others said, nay, but he deceives the people. So some people had different opinions. Some said he was a good man. Some said he was a deluded deceiver. He's walking around. He's deceiving the people, deluding them. He said, this is Jesus. Okay, so we've got two responses. One of them saying that he's good. Another response is he's a deceiver. He deceives the people. That means he's deluded. He's a deceiver. I will tell you this. Either Jesus Christ was the greatest imposter that has ever walked the earth and the greatest liar that has ever lived. He was the Antichrist or he was who he claimed to be. You can't have it both ways. He was either God come in the flesh He's either who he said he was, the Messiah, the Christ of God, or he's the greatest imposter the world has ever seen. And there was mixed opinion concerning who he was from people. People had opinions about him. He knew what the opinions were. Some said he was good. Some say he deceived the people. Verse 13, Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. Look at that. You know what that tells me? That tells me that the Jews, the religious leaders, have already warned the people of Jerusalem that if you follow this man, trouble's coming to you. You with me? So they talked about him. But they were careful when they talked about him because they have already been warned by the leaders of Jerusalem. Trouble's coming to them. So they had a fear. They were intimidated by the religious leaders of their day. In verse 14, now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Wow! Now, in the midst of the feast, he shows up, he shows right back up in the temple. In John chapter 2, he showed up in the temple and he drove out the, drove out the money changers. Made them mad. In John chapter 5, he showed up in the temple to find the impotent man that had been healed. He found him in the temple. But this is the first time that the Bible says he showed up in the temple to teach the Word of God. God sent him to stand in the midst of that temple during that feast to teach, to preach the Word of God. Not to work a miracle, not to work a sign, but to declare the Word of God in the temple. And I don't have time, but you study. Study Jesus in the temple. Take time to study Jesus in the temple. When he was eight days old, circumcised, he was in the temple. Forty days old, when he was redeemed, he was in the temple. Are y'all here tonight? Drove out the money changers of the temple. He was in the temple. He found the man, the lame man. In the temple. I know I've miswarned. He now is in the temple and he's going to teach. First time that I see 
come teach you in the temple. So now, oh, glory to God. And as he's teaching, as he's preaching, the people marvel at his preaching and his teaching. It's blowing their minds what is coming out of Jesus' mouth. They are marveling at this. They have never heard anybody teach like Jesus Christ. They have never heard anybody preach like Jesus Christ. They have never heard or seen anything in their life that they're seeing today in that church service. They are marveling. They are blown away by what they are hearing coming out of the mouth of Jesus. Give God praise in this house. He shows up right there in the temple, and right in the middle of the feast. Hallelujah. Let's see what he preaches. Would you like to know what he preaches? And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters have he never learned? If what they said was true, then he had no rabbinic teaching. If what they said was true, he didn't go to the rabbinic schools or colleges of his day and learn from them if what they said is true. Pastor, didn't you say earlier that they called him Rabbi or Rabboni, that he had some kind of formal education? If I look at this, if what they're saying is true here, okay, where does he get this, these letters, this grammar? Where does he get this ability to teach? They said, are y'all here? How knoweth this man letters having never learned? They said he's never gone to our rabbinic colleges and our rabbinic schools, but listen to him preach. Listen to him teach. If what they said is true, that means he had no former rabbinic teaching. If what they said is true. Hallelujah to the Lord. Oh God. Woo! You see what they're doing? They won't go lay hands on him and take him right now. They hear him teaching, they hear him preaching. What do they do? They attack his education. See, you you, you get it? Do you get it? What they're going to try to do is discredit his teaching. They're going to try to discredit Jesus Christ because they're saying he has no formal education. He didn't get his teaching from the rabbis. He didn't go to college. So they're going to come against his education. They're going to try to discredit Jesus. And see, if you can discredit a man, then that means you don't have to listen to what he says. So what they're going to try to do is they're going to do everything they can to discredit him. If they can discredit him, then... You don't have to listen to what he says. So they're going to try to discredit him in the area of education. Where does he get this knowledge? Where does he get these letters? Where does he get this teaching from? He didn't go to rabbinic schools. Wow. Trying to discredit him. So they won't listen to him an attack of the enemy. See, they stay at a distance and they talk in a distance. Hey, he didn't go to our rabbinic colleges. Where did he learn all of it? Or did he learn? 
trying to discredit his education. If it is true here that he did not go to rabbinic schools and wasn't taught by them, then I have something to tell all of the preachers in this house. An institution is not required by God for you to preach. Well, I need, I need a Bible college if you're going to preach. Oh, really? How am I going to learn? I'm going to tell you what you do. You have God on the inside of you. You let God lead you. You let God speak through you. You let God anoint you. You apply yourself on an individual basis to get in a secret place with God and to study His Word and to know Him and to hear His Word. You don't have to have a biblical institution to do that. And there's some biblical institutions that, that you know, they help people. I'm not saying they're all bad. I'm just telling you, not required. Some of the greatest preachers that you've ever read after, ever heard preach, didn't go to a formal Bible institute. They applied themselves to study the Word of God. They applied themselves to hear God. They were anointed by God. How many of y'all ever heard of a man by Spurgeon, by the name of Spurgeon? Spurgeon was known as the Prince of Preachers. I'm not saying he had all the truth, but he was known as the Prince of Preachers. He wrote... Volumes and volumes and volumes of sermons. No formal education. And yet he's read after by multitudes of theologians. No formal education. You just have to be anointed. You have to be in a secret place with God. You have to have a hunger for the Word of God. You have to apply yourself to study. And if you've got that, you got all you need. But you can't be lazy when it comes to the Word of God. you got to dig. you got to burn the midnight oil. you got to stay in this Word. you got to know what it says. But you don't have to have a formal Bible institute. You need a father. You need a father. I have a father who's with God. His name's Dice. One of the greatest preachers you'll I have never, I'll be honest with you, I've heard a lot of preachers, but I've never heard anybody preach like Dice. Who's my father? He didn't have a doctorate. So now they're going to try to discredit him because he's not an educated man. Well, hallelujah. I got praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Come up, they come up, they come up and ask me. I say, uh, where did you go to Bible college? Uh, read John 7 15. Read John 7 15. I mean, if God sends you there, fine, go. But a lot of people think, if I can just go to a Bible college, then I can really preach. When you get there, you're not even going to do the assignments. So oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> Woo! Heavy theology. Did y'all know this is in the Bible? You know, I've been reading this Bible for a few years and I just now found that out. How can Jesus teach like that? And how can Jesus preach like that? 
He didn't go to rabbinic, rabbinic school according to them, right? Here's Jesus' response to them. And okay. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Oh, glory to God. He said, I'm the mouthpiece of God. How did he didn't get his credentials from a Bible institution? He was the mouthpiece of God Almighty. He got his doctrine singular from God. God has only one doctrine. The Bible talks about doctrines of men because there's so many different teachings of men. And that's what they are. They're the teachings of men. That's why they're in the plural, doctrines. And then there's the doctrines plural of demons. But the Bible here says it's the doctrine singular of God. He don't have many doctrines. Only men have a bunch of doctrines. And, and only demons have a bunch of doctrines. But God only has one doctrine. He don't have a bunch of doctrines. He's got one doctrine. And he said, my doctrine, he says, oh, glory to God. You want to know? He said, you want to know how I can preach and how I can teach like I am right now? He said, it's not because I went to your rabbinic schools. He said, because my doctrine is what? What is it? It's not mine. But he, What? But his that sent me. He said, I'm preaching the word of God. I'm the, he said, I'm the mouthpiece of God himself. You want to know? He said, you want to know how I do what I'm doing? He said, God gives it to me. Give the Lord praise in the house. Hey. Oh, blessed be the name of the Lord. Woo. Now remember, he's standing in the temple in the middle of, the, uh, of uh, the Feast of Trumpets and he's preaching this to them. I hope this helps some of you. My doctrine is not mine, singular, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He said, here's the test. Here's the test. I'm, I'm going to give you a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. He said, this is how you know if my teaching is from God. Are you with me? Watch this. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. The test is obeying the word of God. If you will give yourself unreserved to God and his word. When you do that and you obey that word, you'll know it's God. The test is doing his will. The test is obeying his word. Watch this. So when you obey that word, did it change your life? When you obeyed that form of doctrine, which to, that form of doctrine singular, oh, glory to God, did it change your life? That's the way you know. If Let me just tell you this right now. Not only is he saying this is the way you know if what I'm saying is from God or not. Come on, somebody. When you obey it, it's going to change your life. 
He said, well, I wonder what preacher, what pastor's preaching is, is, is God. Really? Well, I'm writing the book. Hallelujah. So I don't know what else to tell you. But when you obeyed it and you did His will, unreservedly gave yourself to it, what happened in your life? You're going to say, I know it's God. I don't have a doubt it's God. My life has been changed because I have obeyed that form of doctrine which was delivered me. Woo, glory to God. Hallelujah to the Lamb. That is the test. If you go to a church and nobody's delivered, if you go to a church and nobody's set free, if you go to a church and nobody's saved, everybody's still demon-possessed, you can ask yourself if what's coming out of that man's mouth is really of God. That's the test. Because those people that are being preached that word too, that's coming from God, when they obey it and do His will, it will change their life and they will say, I know it's God. You can try to talk me out of it. You can mock me. You can laugh at me. But let me tell you what God has done in my life and what God has done in my family. I know what I know. I remember where I came from. It's tabernacle time. I know where I was before God found me. I know where I was headed before God found me. And when I got in that church and I heard that apostolic message and I obeyed it, it changed my life. That's the test. He said, you want to know? He said, you want to know? He said, you obey. You do the will of God and you'll know that the doctrine... Are y'all with me right now? It's not mine but His. Whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Say amen. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory. What he, what that, another, in contrast, he said the way you're going to know is also character. He said when I have come, I have come to reveal the mind of God to you. Hallelujah to the Lamb. And if you will do His will, you'll be obedient. You'll know whether or not it is of God. And then He says, there are people who preach themselves. Which what He's saying is this, they're bringing their own stuff. They're bringing their own philosophy. They're bringing their own doctrines. Are y'all here right now? They're glorifying the flesh. They're glorifying themselves. They only talk about themselves. They never point people to God. So if it's really of God, they will point people to God. That doesn't mean there'll never be a personal reference. But the focus is not on them. The focus is on pointing people to God and telling them what God said. Jesus is telling them what they need to hear. Not what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. Character. The character of Jesus. In His humanity, He's not trying to exalt Himself. He's not uh, looking for people looking at people. He's not looking to put on a show like the early part of the chapter, His family members putting pressure on Him. He's not doing that. He came to glorify God. Verse 17, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. 
if you don't do God's will, if you don't obey His Word, how are you going to know that it's God? It's when you obey His Word and then you have the results. You see what Jesus can do in your life. Then you know, this is God. I couldn't change myself. Only God can change me. I couldn't save myself. Only God can save me. You might be your own God tonight, but you cannot be your own Savior. There is only one Savior, and His name is Jesus Christ. He that speaketh of Himself seeketh His own glory. But he that seeketh His glory, his glory that sent Him, the same is true. And no unrighteousness is in Him. No unrighteousness in that man. He's pointing people to God. He's preaching the Word of God. That's how you can know. Give God praise in this house. <laughs> Woo, hallelujah. hallelujah. This is the test. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory. But he that seeketh his glory that sent him the same is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Oh, God's good. He's not concerned about his own reputation. He, oh, this sometimes is hard, man. It's not. Come on, somebody today. Ultimately, what are we doing this for? We're doing this to glorify God. Ultimately. And sometimes it's painful, but it's about Him. When you preach the Word of God, if you're worried after you preach the Word of God, whether or not somebody's going to leave your church and all you can think about is the money they're taking with, with them. You need to have a repentant mind. You need to understand it's not about you. It's about God. So get your mind off of that. You're, you're not preaching for money. Come on somebody. You're not preaching for fame. You're preaching to glorify God. And if He blesses you, awesome. But if He don't, you still got to preach. You still got to declare it. They get mad. They get upset. They walk out of church. Don't have a nervous breakdown. Why? Why are you going to have those breakdowns? Because they walked out with money? Is it really about God? In verse 19, Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you keepeth the law. Why go ye about to kill me? <laughs> you see that? See, they're walking around boasting. We keep the law of Moses. And Jesus looks at them and he says, You don't keep the law. Oh, they would say they did. But he's telling them, you don't keep the law. Come on, give God praise in the house. None of you keep the law. If you keep the law, you wouldn't be trying to kill me. But because you hate him and you're hostile to him and you want to kill him, that's proof that you break the law of God that you claim to be keeping. Who really believes in Jesus? Did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you keep the law? Why go you about to kill me? Look, they're accusing him of breaking the law, breaking the Sabbath, which he didn't break. He broke their traditions and their misinterpretation of the Sabbath. He said, tell them, you need to go back and study the Sabbath. Everything that God says about the Sabbath, you need to look at that. And you'll find out that Jesus didn't break the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Come on. Come 
Amen. Praise God. So they were accusing Jesus of breaking the law of Moses. He didn't. The law of God is holy. It's, it's holy. It's good. He broke their traditions and their misinterpretation of it. Tell them, you don't keep you don't keep the law. You're trying to kill me. Murder. You're breaking the commandment. Thou shalt not kill. You want to kill me. You got murder in your heart. Just saying, I know what's in man. I don't know what just what's in, on what God is saying. I don't, I'm not just, just as a man's not just in tune with what is on the mind of God. He's in tune with the hearts of people. He knows what's the, what they're thinking. Oh, hallelujah. He knows. The people answered. Now we move from the Jews or the religious leaders, the Jews. Now we move to the people. And the people is the general population or the citizens of Jerusalem. Here's their response. The people answered and said, Thou hast a devil. Who goeth about to kill thee? Some said he was a good man. Some said he was the deluded deceiver. Or deceiver. Some are saying now that... He has a devil. He's saying the Christ of God is devil possessed. He's standing right there, the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles, and they're saying he has a devil. So now you move from the religious leaders to the response of the people who have gathered there for the Feast of Tabernacles. And they say he has a devil. Thou hast the devil. Who goeth about to kill thee? What are you talking about? Somebody's trying to kill you. See, they don't know what's in them. You've got a devil. What do you mean somebody's trying to kill you? Prove to us somebody trying to kill you. As God who knew what was in them. We already read the first verse. He stayed away from the religious leaders of the world. Because he knew what was inside those people. How did he know it? The Spirit of God in him revealed it to him. Pretty obvious. But the people answered and said, Thou hast a devil, who goeth about to kill thee? Jesus answered and said to them, I have done one work and you all marvel. He said, I was, he, one work connects you back to John 5. Raised that man by the pool of Bethesda there, that impotent man. He carried his bed on the Sabbath day. He said, I did one work and you marvel. He's talking about that work. Remember, because he's in Jerusalem now. He fed the 5,000 over there in Galilee. It's where he worked that miracle in John 5, which is Jerusalem. Healing that man by the pool of Bethesda. I have done one work, and ye all marvel. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is Moses, but of the fathers. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. He said, you know what? You've got it all mixed up. He said, circumcision didn't even start with Moses. It started with Abraham. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant of Abraham that was carried over into the law of Moses. 
He says, you circumcise a man on the Sabbath day to keep the law of God. Watch this. And that was okay. They could circumcise a man on the Sabbath day so he could enter into covenant and keep the law of God on the Sabbath day. And he's still saying, you do that part of man, okay, to make him right with God. You operate on him and it affects a part of him. But he said, Jesus said, I made a man whole. Not just part, but he said, I made a man whole. And you're telling me that I broke the seventh day? When legally you know that you can circumcise somebody on the Sabbath day so they can keep the law of God and they haven't broken the law of God by doing it on the Sabbath day. And you accuse me of breaking the Sabbath day. And he said, I made a man whole, not just part. Give the Lord praise in the house. See, I tell you what he's doing. He's already told him you don't keep the law of Moses. He will not let them straddle the fence. He will not let them be divided. I'll tell you tonight, He won't let you or me straddle a fence. You're either going to be with Him or you're going to be against Him. There's no neutral ground with Jesus Christ. He will not let you straddle the fence. He requires absolute, total obedience and belief. No straddling of the fence. You straddle the fence, it's going to be painful. Because he won't let you be two-sided. Give the Lord praise. Oh yeah, he said, verse 23, If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? He said, I made him whole. You affected him in part. You didn't break the Sabbath. 24. Judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Stop being people, looking at people. Come on, somebody, give God praise in the house. Don't judge based on what you just see with your eyes. Judge based on the truth of God's word. Get in the Word of God. Find out what God said about the Sabbath day and walk according to that. He said, you're walking by appearances. You are people looking at people. You are trying to keep traditions that you say should be kept. You need to get back to the truth and judge a righteous judgment. What does the Bible say? What does the Word of God say? Not what a man says. Not what a tradition says. But what does the truth say? Judge with a righteous judgment. Don't be people looking at people. Find out what God says about it in His Word. That's what you want to do. In fact, that's what you have to do. They were people looking at people. They set up traditions all around them. Religious traditions. He said, no. He said, don't judge according to appearance. What you see with your eyes. He said, judge according to righteous judgment. What is the truth? Get in the Word of God. Are y'all here today? Then said some of them, 
of Jerusalem, is not this man he whom they seek to kill? Is not this man the one they whom they seek to kill? But yet no man lays a hand on him? How is it? See, this is in their minds. How is he the one they're trying to kill that they're not taking any effort to even touch him? This demonstrates his power. I'll tell you why. Because it's not time for him to be taken yet. About seven months, six to seven months down the road, they'll take him in the feast of Passover and they will kill him. But it's not time right now. And until it's God's time, they can't even lay their hands on him. It's the power of God that's in Jesus Christ that's keeping them from doing him any harm at that moment in that time. It's not God's time. All the soldiers in the world, all the armies of the world could come up against him. All demon powers could rise up against him at that moment in time, but they would not be able to touch him or harm him in any way because God says it's not time. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Praise God. Look at how they're dishonoring him. Dishonoring him. Lo, he speaketh, verse 26, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Nothing unto him. They don't say one word to him. Speaking boldly, right there in the temple. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Do they know he's the Messiah? No, they don't. No, they don't. If they do, now put an if there. If they do, they don't want him to be. Because he's not fitting into their molds. They want to take him and make him a king so he'll feed their bellies and start a bread program. Hallelujah to the land. But he didn't come to be a king like that. He came to be a king over a spiritual kingdom over people who he's, has, he has conquered their hearts. Conquered their hearts by the Spirit. So this is not the kind of Messiah or king they want. If they do know he's the Christ, which I don't believe they do, and I'll show you why in a minute. Hallelujah to the Lamb. People say, but lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is very Christ? Howbeit we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. Oh, really? You talk about ignorance. He said, yeah, we know. We know where he's from. We know he's Mary's son. Yeah, he's from Galilee, you know. And, and so we know where he's from. Uh, and, and by the way, because we know where he's from, he can't be the Messiah. Because they say, the Bible says, no man will know. Really? Did the Bible say that nobody would know where the Messiah would come from? No. They took Isaiah 53 where it talks about who shall declare his generation. 
And they twisted that. Who shall declare his generation to mean that nobody's going to know where he's coming from? It was a misinterpretation of the Bible. The Bible told you where he was going to come from. He would be born in Bethlehem, Judah. So they're, they're speaking complete ignorance. Say ignorance. I'm being honest with you tonight. We know where he's at. We know where he's from. But we comes, cry the Messiah comes, no man knoweth what he is. Then cried Jesus in the temple. Say, then cried Jesus in the temple. Very rarely do you see Jesus crying in life. I could show you. If I count where Jesus wept over Jerusalem, I can show you seven times that Jesus cried. The first time in this chapter, he cries out, he lifts up his voice with a loud cry. He's crying in the temple. He cried when they circumcised him at eight years old. The first time he cried in the temple. He's crying now in the temple. The Bible says Jesus didn't cry Jesus in the temple as he taught saying, get this man. They've already said he's a devil. That he has a devil. Some have already said he's a deceiver. Some say he's a good man. Some say, verse 26, he's the Christ, the Messiah. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, You both know me and you know whence I am. You've heard. He said, You know, you've heard what I've taught. He said, You've seen the miracles. I've seen them. You know me. He's talking about some of them in the crowd. You know me. You know. But you don't want to believe it. You don't want to understand, or you would. If you really wanted to understand, you would. Because you don't want to understand and you don't want to believe it. You refuse to. You choose to be ignorant. If you really wanted to know the truth, you would have sought it out. But you choose to be ignorant. You both know me and, and you know whence I am and I am not come of myself but that that sent me is true whom you know not. He said, you don't even know God. What are you talking about? I'm asking you today, do you really believe in Him? Do you really know God? So you can say all day long, I know God. I believe in God. But do we really believe in Him? We show it by our actions. You say, I believe. But if your actions don't line up with what you believe, you don't believe. So Jesus, can you imagine this? He's standing right in the temple and he says, you don't even know God. How many preachers stand up in their churches and tell their church, you don't. Now, I believe that some of you know God. Some of you know God, hopefully all of you. Okay. So I'm not telling you tonight, you don't know God. I'm asking you, do you know him? I'm asking myself, do I really know him? Do we really know him? Jesus, look at the church there. There's millions of people there in the Feast of Tabernacles. He said, to the majority of them, he said, you don't even know God. You're going through all this religion and ritual. Don't even know God. 
but I know him. For I am from him. And he has sent me. You don't know him, but I do. You claim to know him, but you don't. I really want to see Jesus. He has sent me. There's a call on the man Christ Jesus. God has sent me, and he knows the Father. Verse 30, then they sought to take him. Look at this. What is their response? He said, you don't know God. He said, I know him, but you don't. Didn't stop there to take him. Why do they want to take him? Kill him. Kill him. But no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. The power of Jesus Christ is amazing. I'm telling you, they already hated him. Now the hostility is breaking out. They want to murder him. They want to kill him. But the power of Jesus Christ didn't lay hands on him because it wasn't time yet. Not yet. Hold on, listen to me. Not yet. Look at you and say, not yet. Not yet. He's on God's time. Verse 31, look at this. At this point, many of the people believe, say, believe on him. And said, when Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? They said, we can look at the evidence. And the evidence declares that he is the Messiah. Now keep in mind, he hasn't done one miracle in this chapter. He's just preaching. He's preaching the word of God to them. So we can look at the evidence. And if he's not the Messiah, when Messiah comes, will he do more than this man? Just look at the evidence. The Pharisees. Now, this is the people. There's some of the people starting to believe on him, right? And the Pharisees hear them. And they send the temple soldiers to arrest him. The temple guard or the temple soldiers. These soldiers are not the soldiers of Rome. These soldiers are the soldiers of Jerusalem. And they are the servants of the high priest. They are puppets and servants of the religious leaders. And the Pharisees, when they hear the people start, many of them start to believe in Jesus. And say, who believed in him? The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him. The word murmur means they spoke softly. In this, in this case. And the Pharisees, the chief priests, sent officers to take him. Then said Jesus unto them, Yet a little while am I with you, and then, and then I go unto him that sent me. That's one of the most pathetic statements that Jesus ever said. He's telling them, put up with me just a little longer and then I'll get out of your way. When you kill me, I'll get out of your way. 
I won't bother you very much longer. About six, seven months. And you kill me. I'll get out of your way. That's one of the most pathetic things that ever came from the mouth of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying he was pathetic. I'm saying what he said because of their action. See, their unbelief was not, listen carefully, their unbelief did not make him wrong. It showed their condition, not his. You understand that? Everything they said, he's the devil. Everything they said, everything, their hatred and want to kill him. That didn't reveal, you know, that he was wrong or a failure. It reveals their failure. Do you understand that? And he said, how much longer? And I'll get out of your way. Listen to me, young people. Some of you, you just want us out of the way. I'll tell you what. Put up with us just a little longer. A little longer. And then we'll get out of the way. We'll get out of the way when the rapture of the church takes place. And you're turned over to the Antichrist. Then we'll get out of your way. See, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to... Listen, they hated him. They hated his preaching. So therefore, they didn't want his presence. You can't hate a man's preaching. You can't hate a man's person and want to be in his presence. They want to get rid of his presence. The hostility of these people. He's saying, okay, put up with me a little longer and then I'll get out of here. Ooh, Let your hand give God praise. Just put up just with it just a little bit longer. And and God is going to take you away. Do you understand what He's telling you right now? What He's telling them right now? He says, when you have the opportunity, you better take it. Because He's not going to be there always. So when He's there, you better get Him. When He's there, you better not lose Him. Because if you lose Him, you lose your soul. If you lose Him, you will pay for it with your soul. Your response to Jesus Christ determines your eternal destiny. If you lose him, you lose your soul. You will pay the price of losing your soul. I wish we could be done with that youth leader. I wish we could be done with that man of God. Get us another one. In this case, they wanted to kill him. He said, a little longer. And you get what you want. 
you'll get what you want. You don't know the danger that you're in. You don't know if you lose this Jesus, you lose your soul. You don't know the way you respond to Him is going to determine your eternal destiny, heaven or hell. I tell you tonight, some of you live in a dream world. You really don't believe in Him. Because if you really believed in Him, you would believe what He said. And if you believe what He said, you would obey what He said. And that would be shown forth by action. How do you live your life? Do you live your life like I wish he was out of my life? I wish I would be free of the church. I wish I'd be free of God. I wish I could live in the world do what I want to do. Put up with him a little longer. And then he'll get out of the way. I told you now it's going to be heavy for heart. Yeah, a little while. Not much longer, a little while. Am I with you? And then I'll go unto him that sent me. You shall seek me and shall not find me. And where I am, thither you cannot come. You're going to kill me. I'll be out of your way. But I'm going to rise from the dead. And when I ascend up, nobody's going with me. He said, when I ascend up, you're not ascending up with me. He said, I'm going back where I came from. Hallelujah. And look at the response to him. Where's he going to go? What does he mean? Yet a little while. I'm with you, and then I'll go unto him that sent me. You shall seek me and shall not find me. And where I am thither, you cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, Whither will he go? And we shall not find him. Will he go into the dispersed among Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? Is he going to leave Jerusalem and go to Rome? Is he going to leave Jerusalem and go to Greece? Is he going to leave where? Is he going to leave Jerusalem and go to Galatia? Is he going to teach the Gentiles? He will on the day of Pentecost and beyond. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not going to have a geographical relocation in a sense to the Gentiles. He's going to be received up in glorification. Amen. You shall seek me and shall not find me. And whence I am thither, you cannot come. To lose Jesus is to lose your soul. To lose him is to pay with your soul. I got a question for you, church. I don't know when the rapture is going to take place. Only God knows that. I got a question for you, though. Say, what if right now the rapture takes place? You know, matter how many hundreds of people would be knocking on this door, and not just knocking on this door, but trying to break that door down to get in an altar. When Jesus gives the altar call, where will you go? When he called the church to ascend up to meet him in the air, where will you be on that day? Will you go to be with him? Or will you be left behind? I tell you that hundreds of people that have walked through this church and 
they miss the rapture, they will beat the door down and come screaming in an altar and say, Jesus, let you If he don't raise you and he don't call you up, you can't go up in your own power. His doctrine, if I had, I don't have time tonight, but he talked about his doctrine, his claims. His claims, he's going up in his own power. His claims, he would judge the quick and the dead, the unbeliever and the believer. His claims, he claimed to be the Christ of God. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be equal with God. He claimed to be the eternal judge. He claimed to be the creator of the heavens and the earth. He claimed to be the Savior. No man could be saved except by Him. He claimed to be the bread of life. On and on and on. They don't know where He's going. Verse 36, What manner of saying is this, that He said, You shall seek Me and shall not find Me, and where I am thither you cannot come. Just the ignorance of these people. And I want you to see something here, church. He doesn't, he doesn't even tell him. He doesn't explain it to him. You know why? Because he never explains himself to unbelievers. He will come down and he will, if you don't understand something, he say, God, I don't understand. He will come to you and help you understand. Most often through a person. But he will never come to your unbelief. If you don't really believe tonight and show that by your action, he's not going to come down here to explain himself or what he said. He just tells him. He said, what does this mean? You know why he doesn't explain to them what he meant? Because they're unbelievers. They wouldn't believe it even if he explained it to them. They've already passed judgment on him as he said According to appearance. Come on. According to appearance. He can sit there and tell them and tell them and tell them. They still wouldn't believe. How many people in this world pass judgment on this church and don't even know what this church believes, don't even know what we preach, don't know anything about us, but they pass judgment on us before they ever walk through the door. Well, don't do that. I'll tell you what we believe. Come on, I'll show you what we believe. We'll sit down with you. We'll teach you what we believe. If you come in here and you really want to believe, we'll tell you what we believe. Don't pass judgment on us before you get in the church and know what we're about and know what we believe. But how many people are passing judgment? On you, on this church. They don't know what we preach. They don't know what we believe. They don't know what we're about, but they pass judgment. They don't even know us. They'll walk up and they'll speak against this church. Have you ever been to our church? No. Do you know what we believe? No. You're passing judgment based on appearance, not on righteous judgment. Come over here, let me teach you what we do. He does not take the, he does not waste his time in trying to convince the unbeliever. Because they don't want to believe. You understand that today? Now, 
Verse 36, what manner of saying is this that he said? You shall seek me, you shall not find me, and whether I am there, you cannot come. Notice he never explained it to him. But he did say, I'm going to be out of your way soon. He knew. He, see, he was looking forward to the cross. He knew what was going to happen. The second time he cries in the temple, verse 37, it's an invitation to those that will believe. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried. The last day of the feast was that seventh day I told you about. And the priest is walking around the altar seven times to commemorate the, the downfall of the walls of Jericho. Seven times he goes around that and they're waving the willow branches and the palm branches and they're waving the myrtle branches and they're waving the pine branches and they're waving the olive and they're waving other tree branches. All of them speak of the redemption of Messiah. And I've already gone through all the branches explaining to you. And they're waving them. And he's walking around. He's marching. And trumpets are sounding. The people are dancing. They're celebrating this great in gathering. The feast of in gathering. The feast of fruits. And while this celebration is going on. And the priest walks up with that pitcher. That golden pitcher from the pool of Siloam. The water's from the pool of Siloam. And the pictures that held the water had the shape of a belly. And he walks up there and he pours that water through the silver funnel by the altar and the water runs out onto the crown and at that instant, Jesus, the one they said was a devil, I honor you tonight, my God. The one they said was a devil. In that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried. Now he's crying again, saying, if any man thirst, you see this water, Zacharias spoke of this water. You see this water, Ezekiel saw the water flowing out from the temple. You see this water? Oh, it flowed out. It's going to flow out of the side of Jesus with blood. You see this water in the book of Revelation is going to flow from the throne of the king. He said, if any man thirst. The water that came from the rock in the wilderness when Moses spoke to the rock, was only a natural picture of the spiritual water that God would bring. He said, that water you see right now, this demonstration, this natural, typical feast going on here and the water being poured out, he said, that's pointing to me. I'm the true tabernacle of God. I'm the one that will bring redemption to your soul. I'm the one that will quench your thirst eternally, not just temporarily. I'll bring salvation and redemption. Come on, give God praise in this house. He stands up. He gives him. He's crying. He's giving an invitation. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. I'm the fulfillment of tabernacles. I'm the fulfillment of all of this. Come to who? Me, he said. 
and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. If you believe on, he said, if you believe on me, as the Scriptures has said, out of your, your belly, remember the pictures? They were in the shape of a belly. He said, this water that's coming out of that picture is only a tide. He said, there's going to be water coming out of your belly. It's going to flow out of your innermost being. It's going to flow out of your heart. He's talking about the Spirit. When He fills you with the Spirit. Out of your bellies. If you believe as the Scripture has said. See, as the Scripture has said. See, there is a a defined way to believe. It's a specific way to believe. And it's as the Scriptures has said. If you believe as the Scriptures has said, out of your belly shall flow rivers, rail. In the Greek, rail, flow. Out of your belly shall rail, living waters. The word rail in the Greek is where we get the word rhetoric from. It's connected to speech. He said, if you believe as the Scriptures has said, out of your belly shall rail, flow. Rivers of living water. It's going to flow out of you. When it flows out, it's going, to expect, it's going to affect your speech. You're going to begin to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance because it's going to rail out of your belly. You will be a witness. It's going to flow out of you like a river. Just don't damn it up with sin. Don't damn it up with corruption. Don't damn it up with unbelief. He said, when I feel you in my spirit, it's going to flow in the speech and witness. If you believe as the scriptures has said. There's a certain way to believe on Jesus. I'm coming to a close. Romans 10. I'm going to read to you the most misused and abused scripture in all the New Testament. Romans 10, verse 9. But if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So people get a hold of that. And they say, all you got to do is confess Jesus as your Lord, and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead. And they say, you're saved. The Bible says, watch what it says. If you believe as the Scripture has said, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. If thou should confess with thy mouth, what are you going to confess? What are you going to confess? With thy mouth, the Lord Jesus, okay. But how are you going to confess Him? And shalt believe in thine heart. How are you going to believe? What do you believe? That God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It doesn't say you are. It says you shall be. Keep reading. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. But how? You've got to keep reading the scripture. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. The debate here in this passage is can the Gentiles be saved? Verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
how then shall they call on him whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? You're going to have to hear the message of the apostles. And when they lay out that scripture on how to believe him, when they declare that word and those guidelines for salvation, when you believe that and you obey that, then you're saved. It's not just confessing and accept Jesus as your Savior. It is a specific message that's preached by the preacher, the apostles in this case, that will bring you into salvation. This is the most misused and abused scripture in all the New Testament. Just come to the front. Shake the pastor's hand. Tell him, tell him that you believe that Jesus rose from the dead and confess Him as Lord. And they will tell you you're saved. Not according to the Bible. The Bible says you have to have a preacher to know what to believe. Which means there's scripture, there's guidelines that you have to obey in order to be saved. Who really believes in Him? Who has believed that form of doctrine? That form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Watch. How shall they preach except they be sin? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. They might choose it, but they haven't obeyed the gospel. What? Is he talking about what is the gospel? It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, Brother Heath. But how do I obey the gospel? Death, burial, resurrection. Repent of my sins. Be water baptized in the name of Jesus. That's burial. And receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That's the gospel. The gospel is his death, burial, and resurrection. And applying that to my life by and according to the message. Of the apostles. Believing on him as the scripture has said. Set guidelines. Set doctrine. That's how you get saved. Verse 16 says. But they have all not, not all obeyed the gospel. So Isaiah said. Lord who hath believed our report. So then faith. Faith. Cometh by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. See that? But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily. Their sound went into all the earth and their words into the ends of the world. That's how it's here. They said it went forth. The gospel went forth. It was preached. But they haven't obeyed it. Right? Verse 19. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people. The Gentiles can be saved. It's according to the message of the apostles of the gospel and their obedience to it. I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. Look at that. That's what I'm showing you in John chapter 7. The ones that were seeking him didn't find him. And the ones that weren't seeking him, they found him. Gentiles, you and I. I was made manifest in them that asked not after me, but to Israel. He said, all day long I've stretched forth my hand unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. He said, they always speak against the word that's spoken. They're gainsayers. So that is the most abused and misused scripture in the New Testament right there. 
And they say, all you got to do is confess. They said, yes, there's your Savior. Boom, you're going to heaven. But the Bible says you have to obey the gospel. And you have to hear the message preach. In this case, the message of the apostles. That's how you get saved. That's how you become a true believer. So Jesus stood up in the temple and cried. If you believe on me, he that believeth on me, as the scripture say, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this thank ye of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. When you really do believe on Him the Bible way, you will receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. But this thank you, the Spirit which they that believe on Him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He hasn't been on the cross yet. The Holy Ghost hasn't been poured out yet. He hasn't gone to Calvary yet. But after He does, after He rises and ascends, He'll pour out that Spirit. And it's going to flow out of you like a river. Salvation and redemption. It's ultimately going to come from His side. It's going to flow from His throne, the throne of the King. That's the source. See, when Ezekiel saw it, he saw it flow out from underneath the doors of the temple. But he didn't know what was, what, where it was coming from. Until you get to the book of Revelation, then you say, oh, yeah, I see. It's coming from the throne of the Lamb. He's the fulfillment of it. Can you imagine that? I mean, he broke into their ritual and their ceremony. And they're pouring water down the silver funnel that's flowing to the ground. And he said, I'm the fulfillment. I'm the fulfillment of Ezekiel. I am the fulfillment. I am Ruth. He, he's the fulfillment of the, the rivers that flowed out of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, it started naturally in the book of Genesis flowing out of the paradise of God. The natural precedes the spiritual. He said, I'm the fulfillment all the way back to Genesis. Woo, glory, isn't that beautiful? How many really believe tonight? As the scripture has said. If you believe the Bible way, you will receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost and it will rhetoric, it will rail, it'll flow. And you'll become his witness. If you, if you can't declare his word, if you can't witness, if you're a mute, get out of the way. Get out of the way. Because when you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you will be his witness. It'll flow out of you like a river. Hallelujah. If you can't, if you're a mute, get out of the way. There's somebody going to flow. Hallelujah. Give God praise in this house. I tell you, I tell you how to preach. Preach from a flow. You study, you prepare, give yourself to it, but then you stand up, just preach from a flow. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Let the Holy Ghost just flow it out of you. Like a river. Now you can now you know why they were all marveling at his teaching. Now watch this. Remember that group that the Pharisees sent to take him a prisoner? The the soldiers, the Jewish soldiers, the temple card. They, they're all standing in the temple when Jesus is crying this, right? Shouting at the top of his lungs. 
He cried seven times. Two of them are in this chapter. And are you getting bored? It's spring break. Verse 40. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said of a truth, this is the prophet. Look at the responses. Some said he's a good man. Some said he's a deceiver. Some said he had a demon or a devil. Some said he was the Christ. Right? Some were saying now, this is that prophet. He's the one Moses spoke of, the prophet, the Messiah, the one that would be sent by God to save the world. He's the one all the Old Testament scriptures pointed to. He's the subject for him. He was the subject. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? This is that prophet. Did Messiah come out of Galilee? They should have went and checked it. You hear what I'm telling you? They're judging based on appearance instead of the truth. This is the problem with the Church of America. They don't know what they believe. They don't know what's in the Bible. They're ignorant of the Bible. These people that Jesus is standing in front of, friend, they carry the letters. They, they memorize the scripture. They memorize Ezekiel. Jesus had to correct Nicodemus when he didn't know that out of Ezekiel 36 that uh, he talked about that new heart, new birth. Nicodemus didn't know it was spiritual. He, he misinterpreted. He knew the scripture. He didn't know what it meant. These people had the Bible memorized backwards, forwards, they didn't know God. They didn't love God. You can know the Bible. You can read it. You can quote it. You can. And still not know God. And they said. Some of them think that they know the Bible. This is that Christ. But some said shall Christ come out of Galilee. He came out of Galilee. He's a Nazareth. He's Mary's son. You know. Have not the scripture said that Christ coming out of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? Yes, it did. It said he would be born in Bethlehem, Judah. Micah 5. It doesn't add up to them. He come out of Galilee, but yet, doesn't the Bible say he's going to come out of Bethlehem? Yes. But he can't be the Messiah because he came out of Galilee. No, he didn't. He was born in Bethlehem, just like the Bible said, and he was raised in Galilee, Nazareth. See, they're coming to a conclusion based on... They don't check it out. They're like so many, as I said, in the church today, they don't check it out. They don't go to the Bible and find out what the Bible says. All they had to do was go to the Bible and find out what the Bible says and then go check and find out where he was born and where he was raised. That's all they had to do.
but they were too lazy to check it out for themselves. Verse 43. So there was a division among the people because of him, and there always is. He always polarizes people. Always. Jesus will always polarize people. He always will. He always has and he always will. Okay? He'll polarize you. I'm not going to do that. He'll put the unbeliever in one camp, and he'll put the believer in the other camp. He always brings division in people's mind. He said, I didn't come to bring peace. He said, I came to bring a sword. He said, your enemies shall be they of your own household. His own house didn't even believe in him. He came to bring a sword. He came to bring division. When you preach Christ the Bible way and you really preach Him the Bible way, there's going to be a polarization. People are going to make up their mind to go with Him or not to go with Him. He never holds you in neutral. He calls you to make up your mind and to choose what side you're on. Do not sit straddling the fence. He polarized. He brought division. He still does. He'll bring division in your home. Division in your in between you and your friends. Hallelujah. I already told you, you know. Some of you sisters got in a church. Your husband didn't follow you into the church. Division. He brought division in your home. And you know it. And now I set you free earlier by telling you he didn't have the spiritual lordship in your home. Because he's not ruled by Christ. You are the spiritual leader in your house. He always brings. Now that don't mean walk in there. Now tell him, sit down, you know. I'm the authority in here. I'm talking about spiritual authority. You're the spiritual one in the house. You're the spiritual leader. He's in the house. Don't go in there and tell him what I said. Pastor said, you're not the spiritual leader in my house because you're not ruled by Christ. And the only good that you are, good for, is to go sign the note at the bank. Don't you dare tell him I said that. That's the authority you got. Ooh, I don't want to get you in trouble. But he always brings a division. Jesus is always confrontational. I don't know if as you've gone through the book of John or not, if you if it's dawned on you, but the world was against him. And he was against the world. The invitation to them to come to him, to be saved. There was no friendship with the world. There was no love loss. Okay, I'm coming to a close. So there's a division. Get ready. When you come into the kingdom of God and you really start living for the Lord, get ready. There's going to be a division. See, some of you are still trying to have appearances. Solidarity and family. We're together. Appearances. When you get ready, when you live for God, get ready. Hallelujah to the Lamb. 
you know, is this the truth or not? Would you really believe in him? How many you know what I'm talking about? Would you lift your hand if that's happened in your life? That when you really see, you could have stayed doing drugs and drinking and all of that stuff, and your family, oh, they just still love you today because they're a part of the system and you were a part of the system. Or if you had gone to some other kind of church, some other acceptable church, social church, you know, hallelujah, they'd be loving on you. But when you came into the truth, division set in your house. How many of that happened to you? Would you lift your hands? Praise God. I ain't looking. Praise the Lord. He always brings a division. When I, when I say, if I preach this word, the Bible, if I preach this Bible, and by the way, I'm not preaching about Jesus Christ when I preach the Gospel of John. I'm preaching Jesus Christ. I'm not preaching about Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John is Jesus Christ. He is the Gospel. And when I preach Jesus Christ, it's going to make people mad. They're going to get out. They're going to walk right out the door. And I'm not chasing them down. It hurts. I don't want it, but it happens. You understand? So there was a division among the people because of him. Because of who? Him. They hated him. They hated his preaching. Some of them. Some of them did. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Now remember this. Remember I already read to you, they've already sent the Jewish some soldiers to get him, to take him, so they can kill him. What happens? They're listening to him preach this message in the temple, crying in the temple. And remember, these officers are the servants of the high priest. Temple guards. These are the soldiers, not of Rome, but these are the soldiers of Jerusalem. These are the ones that went to get Jesus in the garden to see him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have you not brought him? The Pharisees said, Why have you not brought him? We sent you to get him. To arrest him. Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this. <laughs> Woo, glory to God. They went to arrest him and he arrested them by his preaching. Hallelujah to the Lamb. He captured them. These officers almost became believers. That's an awesome thing, man. Woo, glory to God, man. I got chills all over me right now. Come on, can you imagine that? Marching over there, they're going to take Jesus Christ, capture you know, they kill him. And they hear him preaching, all they can do is just sit there and look. What is their what is the Pharisees' response to them? Are you also this? You and the rest of them. They sent them because they heard the people talking and believing on him. And now 
these soldiers were arrested by his word. So here's, here's the way the religious people do. Okay? They put down these officers. It's a put down. See? Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? Have any of the big shots believed on him? You with me? You're just servants. You're just soldiers. You're just officers in the temple. You ought to know if he was really of God, the Pharisees would be believing on him. Us big shots. It's really of God. If he's of God, it's really of God. Don't you know the religious hierarchy would accept him? That's what they're saying. Listen. But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. The Pharisees say, you know, religious leaders, we don't believe in him. It's just these low life people. These people who say, He's the Christ. When Christ Messiah comes, will we be more than this man? And the first he's saying, the ones that are believing on him are low life with flesh. This in the middle. They say, they don't keep the law. They're cursed of God. They're trash. You catch that? That's the truth. That's heavy theology, but that's what they're saying. I didn't say they were. They said. I'm interpreting it for you. See, us religious leaders, we don't believe. It's just those people that are cursed of God that believe. Cursed, trash. Low, low life people. If it was really of God, that work was really of God, There'd be a religious hierarchy behind it. But it's only the low life. Because they're cursed to God that believes. You talk about, I'm talking about venom. Not just hatred, but hostility and venom. Look, this is the Christ of God. This is the Savior of the world. Who believed in Him? They said, it's only those people who knoweth not the law and the curse. We, we know. We know the Bible. We're not cursing any fallen people. Isn't that something? Nicodemus saith unto them. Remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Nicodemus, the one that came to Jesus by night, say, We know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles except God be with you. And then Jesus tells them, except you be born again of the water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You know? Remember that? Except you be born again of the water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he's the only one that can give you that spirit. And you better be born of that water. Not just accept that Jesus as your Savior. That man. That Pharisee. The teacher of Israel. The master theologian of Israel. A member of the Sanhedrin court himself. Stands up and defends Jesus. Now we find he's the defended one. When the 
officers heard him preach. The indescribable one. Now he's the defended one. And it's Nicodemus standing up. And he is about to put them Jews in their place. He's about to put these Pharisees in their place. And he is a Pharisee. And he's a member of the Sanhedrin court himself. And he had that private conversation with Jesus Christ, you know. And he's about, he's about, oh, oh, oh. How, how are you judging him? I mean, how are you going? You're going to kill him before you bring him to court? You're going to kill him before you give him a trial? We don't work that way. You bring a person to trial before you kill him. They're innocent and still pro until proven guilty. And you've made him guilty without a trial. You won't kill him. What Nicodemus going to say? So the law of God doesn't... God's law doesn't allow what you're doing. He hasn't even been tried yet. See, in the court, our courts, thank God for our courts. Well, I, I say that. <laughs> okay, anyway. Um, some. In our courts, most of the time, you're innocent until proven guilty. Correct? Say innocent until proven guilty. Aren't you glad for that? Huh? Let your name say, I'm innocent until proven guilty. But now look at it and say, I'm guilty until I'm proven innocent. See, in the courts of the land, you're innocent until proven guilty, but in God's eyes, you're guilty until proven innocent. Totally different. But anyway, Nicodemus is going to say, hey, watch this. All right, here we go. Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by not being one of them, doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? They answered and said, watch this. They don't answer Nicodemus' question because Nicodemus took their own law and backed them in a corner. He said, you know what you're doing is wrong. That's, the law doesn't allow what you're doing to condemn him before he's had a court, a, a trial. You want to just take him, arrest him, and kill him. They answered and said unto him, watch this, art thou also of Galilee? You're from the same area that he's from, Galilee of the Gentiles. Those low-life people that live over there in Galilee? I kid you not. I'm telling you the truth. Is that where you're from? You're from, you're from that same area? Ooh. Aren't they also of Galilee? Search and look for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. Nicodemus knew there was a prophet that rose out of Galilee. Read 2 Kings 14, 25. Jonah came out of Galilee. Nicodemus knew Jonah came out of Galilee. What did he stand up and say? Jonah came out of Galilee. You are saying no prophets come out of Galilee? He knew it wouldn't do any good. 
He knew it was a waste of time to argue with those devils. It was a waste of time for him to argue. You don't think Nicodemus knew Jonah came out of Galilee? Not only did Jonah come out of Galilee, but possibly Hosea came out of Galilee. Not only Hosea, but the Bible talks about Nahum. Capernaum means the city of Nahum. And Capernaum's in Galilee. It's the city of Nahum. The prophet Nahum came out of Galilee. Jonah came out of Galilee. Hosea probably came out of Galilee. And Elisha probably came out of Galilee. And they're saying no prophet comes. He said, they said, go check it out. Go search it for yourself. No prophet comes out of Galilee. No. It wasn't Nicodemus that needed to go search it. It was them. They needed to go search it. They didn't want to believe it. And Nicodemus knew they didn't want to believe. That's why he did not waste his time in responding to their statement. We come to the end of the Feast of Tabernacles and the end of the message tonight and every man went into his own house. And Jesus went into the Mount of Olives. The next verse, and he slept through the night on the ground. He said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The birds of the air have nests. The foxes are, have holes. But the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. They went unto their own house and he went to the Mount of Olives and slept through the night. And nobody invited him to their house. Artists are at home in an art gallery, and a farmer is at home in his own crops. But the creator of the world came to his own creation and didn't feel at home in his own creation. They went to their own house and they didn't invite him to come. Said that is. Will you take him home tonight with you? Is he welcome in your home tonight? Do you really believe in him? Six or seven months from this feast, they will kill him. And they will be done with him. And he'll get out of their way. He wasn't welcome. He came to his own, and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Do we really know him, church? Do we really believe in him? If we do, we'll obey him, and our actions will show him. Show that. All of you tonight are his physical creation. Will you take him home with you tonight? Is he welcome? Or will you tell him, you're not welcome in my home, even though you created me? Go sleep on the ground. The man of all this.
as well. Maybe this is a Jesus that you've never seen or heard about before. But this is the Jesus of the Bible. It's not the Jesus of this world. The Jesus of the world, the Jesus of religion and Christendom today is not the Jesus of this Bible. They don't know Him. He's not welcome. In their homes. If he were to walk in here tonight, let's say he came back to the earth and he walked the streets to see what church he could preach in. How many churches in Odessa, Texas or Midland, Texas would even want him to stand in their pulpits and preach? Would he be welcome here? And if he, were, if he did come here and he really did preach to us, would we take him home with us when we leave? You think about that. You say, but pastor, I'm not like these people. I'm closer to God than they are. I believe more than they believe. Are we sure about that? See, we can look at him and say, I'm not like them. I'm closer to God than they were. But can we really say that? That's the question. How would you respond to him if he came and preached that way to you? All right. What about John the Baptist? He believed in him. He was beheaded. He wasn't accepted by the world. He was beheaded. Would John the Baptist be accepted in this church if he were to come and preach to you? Would Peter, James, John, any of those disciples that believed on him, would they be accepted in this pulpit? Would you receive the message they preached without being offended? Without going angry? Think that he would be welcome here. I pray to God he would be. I pray to God. But I think those Pharisees and religious leaders of the Jews really thought that what they were doing was right. They are the leaders, the ones that God gave a song to sing when he came, would not sing his praise. The ones that God gave money to finance the kingdom with would not finance His kingdom. Those that God gave His word to to preach and declare Him when He came, they did not preach and declare Him. They were people looking at people. And that governed their lives. They were going by appearance and not righteous judgment. You will not be accepted by the world if you're accepted by Him. If you're accepted by the world, you are not accepted by Him. Stand. Father, I come before you today and I ask your blessing to rest upon this house tonight. And Lord Jesus, many of uh, the people who are gathered here today are your people. They belong to you. They